All right, welcome to the AdaptX podcast, where we have conversations with individuals who are building accessible businesses and products, advocating for inclusion or excelling in adaptive sports. Our intention is never to speak on behalf of those with disabilities, but give them a platform to amplify their voice and share insights to make a more accessible world. Today, we are joined by Ken Walsh. Ken is a senior advanced analytics manager in the medical device industry and a keynote speaker who has transformed adversity into strength throughout his remarkable journey. Overcoming a history of substance abuse rooted in a challenging upbringing, he found solace and support in the fitness community. Through sharing his story with high school students, he aims to destigmatize addiction and mental health, offer hope and guidance on the path to recovery. Ken, thanks for joining me today. Oh, you're welcome. Excited to be here. Uh, so maybe, um, I know we, we talked prior to this, so I, I know you're comfortable doing so, but uh, maybe just to give a little bit of background into the events that led to where you are today, uh, can you share a little bit of your, your upbringing that you mentioned in that bio? Sure, yeah, so it's, uh, it's a long story. <laughs> There's a lot there, so I'll try to condense it just a bit. I grew up uh, in a household um, we were on welfare. I was the youngest of six kids, a mixed family. My mother and my father both met. Uh, they both had kids, and, and I was the only one between both of them. Uh, my youngest part of my childhood, I mean, out, besides being in a 1,100-square-foot house with eight people and one bathroom um, and three bedrooms, so I ended up with my sisters in a very pink bedroom for about 12 years, uh, so... Um, but yeah, I mean, I think my, my early years were, um, you know, were, were what I would consider to be great years, right? I didn't know, you don't know, like, you know, it's really different outside of your household, right? So, but my mother um, had had a troubled past. She had been um, uh, molested, raped by a family friend multiple times growing up. She struggled with alcoholism and, and with mental health issues. Um, and so... Maybe about when I was nine or 10, I think maybe everything really changed. My brothers and sisters were getting in trouble, being brought home by the police. There was physical and verbal abuse in the household. Um, and uh, there was addiction, you know, drug use uh, that's prevalent. My brothers and sisters, they were kind of smoking weed around me when I was maybe six or seven. Uh, I was a tagging along, following them around everywhere. And but about maybe the age of nine or ten, my mother's um, my mother was uh, was diagnosed with cancer, a form of lung cancer, but not due to smoking. Her and my father were very heavy smokers. But um, she went through radiation, and in the process of that, she was uh, introduced to pain pills in uh, in the form of opiates. And this is kind of very very early days, you know, late '80s. Um, so there's no control and, and she was kind of doctor shopping. She became hooked very quickly. Like I said, she was already an alcoholic. So that was kind of, that was sober. So she got hooked on opiates and, and she was bipolar type two. And so she, we went through many years where she barely got out of bed and there was many suicide attempts and you know, visiting her in, in the mental hospital and things like that. Um, and kind of multiple teenage pregnancies at the same time with my brothers and sisters and, uh, you know, I started smoking weed and drinking when I was about 14, uh, I think, you know, happened in my neighborhood and with my best friend. And, um, I think we almost kind of couldn't wait to, to start really. It was almost the expectation. I think the way I grew up, I mean, it's crazy to say that now, but it's, it's just true. And so then I think as I got into my teenage years, my brothers and sisters for the most part left the house, but my sister had become a heroin addict and, um, she moved away to Fall River, ended up going to, you know, becoming an addict, like I said, in prostitution. She had a baby. She gave it up for adoption. She ended up going to jail for about two or three years. She came back home sober in my late teenage years and kind of played that mother role, really, that I was looking for, right? She asked for my report card. She went to my, you know, soccer games, things like that. And I was always a, a, an, an athlete. I always did very well in school. School was really easy for me. And she came home and, um, you know, she was doing, she was doing well. And, and, but always talked about kind of, if she would have run into heroin and do it again, she would kill herself. And, um, she ran into and used heroin. And the next morning, you know, I was 17. The next morning she shot herself in the heart on the side of a main road in my, my town in North Kingstown that I grew up in. And so I just kind of, from there, I really dove deeper into the drugs and alcohol and isolated myself more. I didn't deal with it at all. I wouldn't talk about my emotions. I wouldn't talk about really nobody asked. 
any of the trauma that was going on in my household and the things that were going on. And, um, you know, I, like I said, by that time I was, you know, I guess you call me a pothead, but I was still an all state soccer player. Um, so went off to college at, at URI and then, you know, I think things would progress from there, but I mean, that's a, I guess, brief synopsis of my childhood and, and what happened and what, what kind of led me to that point that I left home to try to build a new life. What factors differentiate between those who make it out of an environment like that and those who don't? I wish we knew, you know, um, you're far more likely to repeat the cycle. And I, I did for the most part for many years, we lose hundreds of thousands of people to, you know, addiction and mental health disorders every year, you know, including alcohol in that. And, um, we don't know why we just don't seem to have answers. I mean, I, I think the one thing we do know is, is that, you know, childhood trauma is the number one predictor of, um, addiction or mental illness in adulthood, partially because, um, you know, I guess uh, kids' brains are not built to to deal with adult level stress like that, right? It really rewires your brain if you deal with that type of stress in a household or in when you know when you're a little kid or if traumatic events happen to you. Um, and you know, so we I think when we talk about mental illness or addiction, you know, we talk about well, you know, is it genetic? And I think to some degree it is, especially bipolar. But at the same time, it just seems that people who end up in households that have a lot of that end up with mental illness and addiction and then they now as adults build a household that has that which then you know and it kind of passes that on i think for me specifically the only reason i mean i get i don't know you know i don't i have a lot of drive i guess you could say i was never willing to settle but also like i said school was really easy for me and i think if it was something where school i had to work really hard I'm not sure at that age I would have, I was ready to put the work in. So I got by with my drug and alcohol use um, and, and barely just mailing it in at school and still getting A's and B's. At what point did things kind of switch for you? Or maybe what was, was there a specific incident that you were like, oh, I need to turn this around? Well, I mean, you know, going to college, I went to University of Rhode Island. It's a great party school. Um, joined a fraternity, right? I mean, drinking every night, smoking every day, all day. I mean, and still, you know, putting, I don't even know, 50%, you know, into my studies. Uh, I would leave school for a little bit and go back and take it more seriously. You know, put the work in really hard, but I had to put myself through school. So it was, you know, was full-time work at the same time as full-time school. Um, at the same time as almost full-time partying at night. Um, you know, when you're young, you can bounce back like that. It was really just the cycle. And, um, you know, I met my wife on the first day that I, I went to URI. She was the first person I met at University of Rhode Island, which is pretty cool. We'll celebrate 20 years in, uh, on April 24th. Um, she's the only reason why I'm talking to you today, to be honest. Um, and, but, you know, I mean, in college, you know how that is. It's just like you're a partier, right? Like, oh, everyone parties and stuff. But we were just like that next level, me and my friends, you know. Uh, and, and that went right into, you know, moved up to Massachusetts with my wife, got a job in corporate America. So did she. We were climbing the ladder. We were doing really well. Um, and new into a company where a lot of kids are young. We're going out multiple nights a week. I mean, that's part of the culture there as well. So you just kind of find those types of people who like that lifestyle that you do everywhere you go and it perpetuates. Um, but for me, I think I had, I had really in the later years of college been introduced to and fell in love with uppers like cocaine and Ritalin and, and that type of stuff. And, and that was a love affair that, that very came very close to killing me and, and taking everything from me. Um, but I, I, I think what people don't understand about addiction is they think, you start smoking or using, and then immediately you're dysfunctional. But it, it's really not even close to that. I mean, for most people, there's 10, 15, 20 years in between in which you're in active addiction, and it's growing worse and worse. And then you finally get to the edge of the cliff and fall off. You know, you can be extremely productive as someone who's in the throes of addiction. You see it all the time. I mean, we all work with people. We all know people who are 
drinking way too much every night. They know it. They're inactive. And you would never know, really. So, you know, for me, we we kind of continued to build that life. We both got an MBA, went back to school, got an MBA at, at UMass. Um, and, um, you know, at some point, I, I just, um, I never drank without cocaine or something else. It became just a one or two or three nights a week thing. And then, um, yeah, I guess it just progressed and progressed. I was never an everyday drinker. I was more of a binger than anything. And um, I lost my mother finally. She was in active addiction for many, many years. I lost her in, when I was 27 and, you know, 46 now. And uh, I mean, really the same thing. Like, I, I don't remember crying. And I'm a very emotional person nowadays, you know? And um, if I look back in like the five to 10 years following that was really where I would gradually get worse and worse and worse. And I think what had happened as I look back now in counseling is that it just opened up a lot of wounds. You know, my, my mother, they found her, um, she was she was unconscious, you know, wasn't breathing. And so they got you know, they were able to resuscitate her, but she had had, you know, long enough with no oxygen to the brain. So, you know, we had to pull the plug and, and we don't know if it was overdose or if it was an intentional act of suicide. Like I said, she probably attempted suicide maybe 15 times in my life, ended up in the hospital. So we'll never really know that, but we do know what they found in her body. Um, and, you know, there was, of course, a lot of drugs that we knew. So, after that, I just kind of slid for a long period of time, but didn't realize it when it was happening. You know, I still said, well, I've built this view of what success looks like in my mind. I grew up poor. We fought about money. There was no, you know, room in the house, you know, clothes and food. And these were the things in my life that I had decided that if I got to the point where I didn't have to worry about them, then I was successful. And I had had two boys now, two little kids. And I had a nice house and I was making good money. I had the nice car. I didn't have to worry about that stuff. And I was the most miserable I've ever been. And I literally, I didn't want to be here anymore. And um, you know, I was really close to that point that I lost my dad. Um, and the story of how I lost my dad and what happened after that would really kind of be um, the, the turnaround. Were your kids born during the process and you were still addicted to drugs and alcohol yeah absolutely um how how do you intend on raising them to kind of break that cycle oh well i think it's what i'm doing you know um so my my boys were are too young to remember any of my drug or alcohol use um you know by that time i was like i said i was never an everyday user or any of that you know and and but it would get to the point where i was binging for two three days at a time sometime um, barely sleeping, that type of stuff, maybe not coming home. And um, my father passed in 2012. And so we got a call that he was in the hospital with pneumonia and uh, came down there and to, to be with him. You know, my father was a very heavy, unfiltered cigarette smoker since he was like 16. Um but he was, he coached in my town. He coached every one of my brothers and sisters. He had an impact on hundreds, if not thousands of lives. And, you know, he was somebody that everybody knew and revered and loved. And, and he just kind of didn't have any words or he didn't know what to do with me when all of this happened with my sister and my mom and all of that. I mean, we didn't talk about addiction and mental illness back then. And, you know, um, but he was like, you know, he's my best friend. He's he's the guy that always had my back. And I, I go to the hospital and, and they say, well, you know, they actually diagnosed him with stage four lung cancer while I was there, while I was in the room. And they said, you know, you have three to six months to live if the pneumonia does not spread to the other lung, because if it does, you're too weak and it's going to kill you. And two weeks later, it wiped him out. Um, but during that process, I saw him with very specific in my mind that I still think about was I came in in the morning to see him because, you know, we're coming in every day and staying there all day. And the waste, the, the, I asked the nurse, you know, how he was doing. And she said, well, he had a really rough night last night. And I'm like, well, you know, what do you mean? She said, well, he's like, he was ringing the buzzer thing. And, and I, we come in and he's just basically like, he's saying, I, I can't like live in my own body right now. Like knowing 
the impact he's going to have on me and his grandkids and my other siblings, you know, and that he was the cause of his own death. You know, he had he had seen the impact of all of the other um, trauma had had on us. And for him to now be putting on top of that, he just he's having a hard time. And, and he was almost like convulsing. They said, like, that's how bad he was like in that spot. They had to put him, you know, give him sedatives. And to, to make him sleep. And so I just remember taking it all in. I remember after he passed, people reached out. Your father was like a second father to me. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, he had a huge impact on the town. And I was like, well, like I'm, I'm watching my own death, right? Like I'm going to die. Sorry. Filled with regret, right? Um, that. I wasn't the cause of my own death and that I passed it on, always promising myself that I wouldn't. And, you know, like, how can I leave a legacy like this guy, like a giant legacy? He was a giant of a man of what he left behind. And, you know, I think it was the only time or the only confluence of events that ever brought me to the point where I was asking questions about myself and answering them honestly. And I didn't like the answers, you know? And um, I think the hardest part at that point was knowing that my dad wouldn't be proud of me and the life that I was living because um, he didn't know a lot of my secrets. And, you know, that's, that's kind of really hard given he was really the only one I ever cared about what they thought. Um, and so it's just, it was for me that trigger, that place that, um, I, I promised myself I was going to fix it. And I was up for the journey because I had promised myself, I don't know, a million times, right. That I was going to stop and that it was going to get better and all that stuff. And so that moment for me seemed to be a turning point. I would have a couple dips later on, but that was really, you know, what, what set me on my path. Yeah. You mentioned legacy. It was a. There's a question someone asked me when I was appearing on their podcast a few weeks ago. I mentioned I have two boys under two years old, and he said, oh, what's the what's the legacy that you want to leave for them? And I didn't really have a good answer for it at the time. I'm still not sure I do. Um, or at least, like, what would I want my kids to think of me? And it doesn't really have anything to do with the businesses that I run and, and the work that I do, but I want to make sure that I'm there for all their games. Um, that seems to be the one thing that's sticking in my mind right now is being there for all the important milestones. Uh, you mentioned like you knew at that time that you had to take the first steps to changing it. What were those steps? Yeah, well, it's the, for what you just said right there about the game. So the one thing that kind of hurt me the most out of all of it with my mom is that when I was, I don't even know, 13, 14, she just stopped coming to my games. And, you know, I was a striker on the soccer team and I was like a star in the town team. And stuff. So I was having big moments on the field, you know, whether it be like regular or once you get into high school and, you know, just kind of looking, always looking to the sidelines to find my mom when big things would happen or to see her on the side, you know, just like you do as any kid does. Right. Just like looking at the sideline to like, OK, mom and dad's here. Right. That's a big thing. And you don't realize how much it will kill you inside when you look over and they're not. But at one point, they were not, or she was not, and it was never to, to come again. Um, and, and that, to this day, hurts. That's one of the worst things, you know, um, because, you know. So it, it, I think I was having this conversation with me, and it took me several months after my dad passed to really go through this little exercise. I just remember one time, just like I was actually looking in the mirror, and, and I was saying to myself, like, you know, nobody gives a shit what you've been through. Like, the world doesn't give a shit. The people around you that are closest to you are going to give you excuses. They're going to say, oh, he had a hard life. Oh, he's going through a tough time. Oh, he's going through a, you know, because that's their, it's human nature, right? That's empathy. But, you know, nobody outside cares, right? I need to be a good person, a good human, a good dad, a good husband, right? I need to give back to the world, right? That's why you're here. And, and so it's just kind of a different viewpoint of the world at that point that, that I call my father's death, the greatest gift he ever gave because he gave me clarity and clarity is important and perspective is important. So, you know, at, at that point I was 50 pounds overweight. I mean, I was huge. Right. And, and I wasn't athletic. I wasn't doing anything. 
And and I was just like, okay, like I, I, I'd seen this thing called CrossFit. I had fallen in love with it uh, from afar. And I was like, I would love to do that someday, but I wasn't anywhere near where I could. So I said, okay, you know, I'm going to lose 50 pounds. I, I made that number 50, you know, I'm, and I was like, I'm going to lose 50 pounds. And, and the way I'm going to do is I'm going to run. I'm a soccer player. I love to run when I'm in shape anyway. And so uh, I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get myself back into shape. I'm going to diet and I'm going to run and I'm going to lose 50 pounds. And for 18 months, I ate salads and ran and was just hardcore. And I took off the 50 pounds and I was rail skinny, not even close to what I look like today because I, I had decided I was going to build back a healthy frame, you know, something that I worked for. And so I got to that point and then I signed up for CrossFit and I went into the CrossFit gym for the first time. And, you know, I'm kind of a person who even with running or whatever, you're almost masochistic in a way. Like I love to push myself to my absolute limit where I'm like gasping for air, you know, like, and I think a lot of addicts and people with mental illness crave that, right? That's, you know, that's why you find a lot of, a lot of addicts run endurance races or find their way into a CrossFit place, right? Because it's, it's something that replaces that, you know, being pushed to your limit and giving you that challenge that you need. Um, and so, yeah, so I went in and I was awful. I remember him doing like the first test to see like, okay, I want to gauge where you are. And he said, okay, let's see how many strict pull-ups you can do. And remember, I had just lost 50 pounds. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to kill this. One. I got down and I tried to do two and I couldn't get back to the bar. And I was like, okay, like, that's good. That's where you're at. Right. Like, and I was mad and I should have been. And, and I use those types of things to drive me. Right. I'm like, I'm angry at where I'm at and I want to be better. I want to be in a better place. And so, uh, the journey was on and I fell in love with it. I did it for nine years until kind of injuries piled up and I've got a bad back and that and a bad knee. Um, but yeah, man, so that was, uh, that was the moment that I had decided and that was the route that I said I was going to go. Um, yeah. And I mean, I think, like I said, there were some bumps in the road from there um, because even after that, I was still using here and there because I had promised myself, I was like, oh, well, I can go back to like just drinking because I can be normal like everybody else. And then I would prove myself wrong over and over. I'd go get four or five drinks. I'd go find some cocaine and then, you know. And so I'd go this like two or three months at a time being perfectly clean and then explode and use for two or three days and then do that again and do that again. And um, what I noticed along the way was that when I would come down from a binge or whatever, I would be in like a depressive state where I couldn't get out of bed for like a couple of weeks at a time. Like, you know, Three weeks before I was running a race on a mountain for seven my for seven hours and like loving every minute of it. And then, you know, three weeks later I can't get out of bed to shower. So like, you know, just like what is going on here? Like I was scaring myself. I didn't think I was ever gonna be normal again. And I didn't know what was happening. Um, finally got to a place where it scared me to death. Like it scared me to the point where I never thought I was gonna be normal again. And that was the moment that I raised my hand and I asked for help and said, I don't have the answers anymore. I basically raised myself since I was 14. I always had the answers and every answer that I had was the right answer. And here I am. I promised myself I was going to stop this so many times. I did for a year and a half and that was good, but I can't, I just can't. And it was finally time for me to say, Maybe I need someone else um, that, to help out and to, to bring somebody else into that very private disaster was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. You know, it was embarrassing. Um, yeah, it shouldn't imagine. have been. It shouldn't have been right because we need to be better at saying I need help. You know, we, we all can say I'm human and I need help, but there, there's an ego thing at play. And I think that stops a lot of people from asking for help. Um, but for me, it saved my life. It saved my marriage. It saved everything. And that was my journey to like finding out I was severely afflicted with a mental health disorder, um, you know, finding out about my addiction, um, counseling and talking about all the awful stuff that had happened, right? Like that was that journey. Um, but uh, 
yeah and then from there man i mean that's that's the journey that's how we get here yeah you mentioned after your sister passed you had no intention of sharing your feelings obviously kept it bottled up for a long time before finally finding this counseling and now now you're public speaking and sharing your story um at what point did you decide one that you were comfortable sharing your story to maybe that you thought it was worthwhile to share and who did you hope that it would benefit? Yeah, those are great questions. Um, I mean, just even before that, we talk about men and um, vulnerability, um, you know, showing and talking about your emotions, that type of stuff. I mean, we, we, everybody knows this. We just do a really bad job in society of, of building up what a definition of like masculine means or being a man, you know, we, we, the world and, and some people teach their boys a, a very early on um, that emotions are a bad thing to have. Um, to cry when they're upset or happy is a bad thing. Um, and so, you know, when a father tells his boy, you know, suck it up, you shouldn't be crying because of this. It doesn't change in the future the fact that they want to cry but when they do, it just makes them feel broken because daddy said it shouldn't happen. And we wonder why we have so many like young adult males that are broken and violent. It's because we just, we don't know how to express our feelings and our emotions. You know, we don't know how to let people in. We don't know how to be vulnerable. Um, and, and what you find when you do is that you unlock a part of yourself that people are really drawn to. Weird in a way when you, you know, so I'm like, I reframe it to say, okay, well, isn't a real man someone who's willing to show their feelings? Even if someone's going to judge them, you know, like that's real masculinity, right? I'm going to be my authentic self. And if you don't like me because of that, are you going to put a label on me? Like, I don't need you in my life, right? Like real men do not not show emotions because someone will say they're weak, right? It's kind of that opposite. We need to change it. So, you know, I went into counseling and I started talking and I started talking about things, my goodness, that I never in a million years would, would have talked about or what I thought I've talked about. And of course I realized that, you know, I went through hell and back and I had a reason to be broken and that I was always going to be broken unless I put the time in, put the work in. Um, and so you know, and that also validating that some of my anger and resentment for my mom and my sister and people like that, like that was valid and I was okay, you know, doing that. So as I started that journey of like what that looked like, one of the things when I started running again, I said I wanted to do was run the Boston Marathon and I got the chance to do it. And I got the chance to do it for a charity that I sit on the board of in Rhode Island called the Samaritans of Rhode Island. And um, I like especially at work or really anywhere. Like I would just not tell people about my mom or my sister or what happened in my past, all of that stuff for fear of being judged and, and those types of things. But um, I, I went to the executive director of Samaritans, who's a dear friend of mine now. And I said like, okay, I would like to raise money for you. And she said, okay, but you're going to have to tell your story. She goes, that's what we do. We don't hide that here. If you're going to reduce the stigma and fight that, then you have to tell your story. I remember thinking like, oh, Jesus, I don't know about that. Like, I'll talk to a counselor about it, but I'm not going to put that out in the world. Um, but you know what? I, I was like, okay, let's go. Like, if, if it's for a good cause, I'm always willing to put myself out there and be vulnerable if I think it can help people. And um, so I, I, you know, put it out. I had to go fund me or whatever it was, right? And I shared it. I was at a small consulting company at the time. My boss and the president of the company both reached out and said they they lost a daughter i mean a, a sister to suicide when they were younger so um and other people reached out saying you know they had they were affected in some way but i was like man this is my boss and the president like these are the people that are like closest to me or who i look up to the most and they have these shared experiences and it was a in a it was validating it was healing because I think I lived in the work world, corporate America or whatever it is, and said, if I, if I show who I am or what I've been through, people will judge me. 
And then maybe I had a chip on my shoulder too, like kind of guarded, like, you know, you, you don't know what I've been through. You couldn't have done what I've done, that type of stuff. But then what's happened, I think, is that the things that were isolating me the most then became the things that gave me the connection I was seeking so much. The relationship I built with my boss because of it. The relationship I built with my president, and the president actually said, I'd like to give a sizable donation if you'll put the name of the company on your shirt when you run the marathon. And I did, right? So like, um, I, I was like, okay, I'm healing and other people are healing and wow, this is powerful. Um, and that was the start. And then from there, I, I wasn't sharing like I was tr having trouble with addiction. At that point, I didn't know that I, I was bipolar type two. Um, so I would share here and there. And then, you know, as time would go on, I would get a formal, you know, a psychiatric evaluation. I'd get diagnosed as bipolar type two. And that's what my mom was. And it's genetic. Um, and then that was really important for me because people say, well, how did you feel when that happened? And I said, it was an answer. I had been searching for an answer for so long on why the things were happening in my life they were hap that were happening. Now I had a reason. Now I had a way to know. I'm very much a two plus two equals four guy. So if they said, this is what you need to do to, to thrive with this, and it's exercise, and it's eating, and it's you know bedtimes, you know, you're getting a certain amount of sleep, all of these things that you have to live a certain way, even if it challenges the way you had been living before, if that gives me the best chance to thrive in this world, I'm all in. So, you know, I got that diagnosis. And then I think as the years went on and I was sober for a little bit of period underneath me, I started adding in the addiction piece and that I was in long-term recovery. And still, once again, that fitness being the thing that, the theme that runs through it of that place that I went to heal now, I remember so many times running on the road in the early days and just crying as I ran. You know, I always felt that somehow being outside brought me closer to them. Um, and it was kind of a place that um, I went to, like, deal with those thoughts or reason with the past and come to grips with it. Um, and, and I always just found myself um, finding comfort in fitness. And And I think that's what we're here to discuss, right? Like. How do we use fitness to recover from disabilities, to make our disabilities better, um, to um, bring other people into our world and try to help them heal through those same ways, right? I mean, I think those are, those are things that, that you and I are very passionate about and why we're here talking. Yeah, absolutely. Um... Let me try to maybe hash something out. If I'm going to ask you to share, I'll try to do my best to share, but it's things I've never said out loud, so I haven't really fully thought out the uh, the sequence of events. So I had a great childhood. Um, I was first introduced to disability when I was 15, so I broke my wrist and I couldn't play basketball, so my mom made me volunteer at a Special Olympics program. And like, oh, I mom, love that. And like moms, they're, they're always right. So that was my first exposure to disability, and... Immediately, um, I was enamored with something associated with it. Maybe I couldn't pinpoint it at the time, still maybe can't pinpoint it exactly, but I think maybe in a world where you have a lot of pressure from external um, sources, it was really refreshing to just have people that really cared for your time, uh, and they kind of accepted you as who you were. Uh, so around a similar age as maybe when a lot of my friends did start drinking uh, mid-high school. Um, that made me pretty mad. Um, I'm not sure exactly why. Um, I was working with a lot of people with disabilities, and I felt like they were dealt an unfair card, and I was mad that my friends who weren't were uh, maybe wasting their abilities to a degree. So that made me angry. Uh, so the transition to college wasn't great. Because obviously at college, it's a huge part of it. Uh, so I'm not sure I really found anyone at university that was, uh, maybe I didn't make enough of an effort, but um, who was like me and that I just really wanted to study and I really wanted to do well. And I really wanted to uh, help those kids that I was working with in Special Olympics. So, um, But when I was 19, my next door neighbors that I grew up with both passed away about like six months apart from one another. 
uh, so Will in a car accident, and then um, Leah from cancer six months later. And at that time, I transferred, so I, I commuted to school. I uh, kind of needed to be out of that environment. And I started working full-time as a behavioral therapist for one of the kids. Um, and, yeah, I don't – I guess it was just, like, ingrained in me from there that my role was to help other people um, instead of myself. And so maybe, like, you uh, have never spoken to anyone about it, have never dealt with maybe anything that kind of ingrained some of these thought processes in my mind – um, and maybe along some, along the way somewhere I became like addicted to my work. Uh, I don't know if, yeah. if that, uh, obviously not conflating it to, uh, drug alcohol addiction, but, um, yeah, for the last eight years, maybe less so in the last year and a half after my son was born and I've worked hard to try to prioritize, uh, time with him, but maybe for the first six years of owning my gym, pretty much everything revolved around, uh, work. And I think I was yeah. just using it to distract myself uh, and using it as a way to not have to address anything that was bothering me. Um, so running probably is similar in some ways. Um, I, like you, you said, like when you're outside, you feel connected to people. I always kind of have a mantra in my mind when I'm racing that it's like a privilege to suffer. Uh, there's a lot of people yeah. I work with that can't run. Obviously, my yeah. friends who passed away don't have the opportunity to do these things. Um, feel a lot of guilt about that. Um, and so I wonder if, like, work and running can be an unhealthy addiction, and if so, whether that should be addressed or whether it should be leveraged. Yeah, you know, it, it's a good question. It's a, or it's a good topic to discuss, right? I think but the, the thing that I heard from you that, resonated with me is what I was talking about before is is clarity and perspective, right? So you had um, an, an unfortunate accident, which took you off of the basketball court. And then you were, uh, you worked with special needs kids, right? And that gave you a perspective that gave you clarity on the world that other kids your age didn't have. And it will change you. You know, if you're willing to let it change you, it will like some, some things like that are, have such a dramatic effect and that, that it changes you forever. And, but that's in a good way. There's other stuff that's in a bad way. Um, I think you said, you know, I'm not conflating it with kind of what I've been through or whatever. And what I say is it's not a contest, you know, um, we, we all have things, um, and we, we just always try to do our best. We, we, we try to get to a point where we understand everything in moderation. Specifically for me, I have a very addictive personality, so I can get caught up in things. And I have to always kind of remind myself of like, okay, is this healthy? Is this too much? Is this whatever, right? So just like maybe you're asking yourself those questions. But the only person I think that holds the answers to those are your wife. Um, you know, are you, are you being the person you need to be for her and at home? And if the answer is to some degree, no, then it's a conversation that you have to be willing to, to be open to and, and change for. Um, I think that every person on earth should go to counseling. I think it is therapeutic to talk about anything, you know, your relationship with your dog. Um, like it just, because I, I think, you know, we oftentimes just don't really know if it's quote normal to have some of the thoughts we have, and then we question them, maybe like, do other people think like this? Do other, and I hate that term normal, but the point is, I mean, it couldn't hurt, you know, an hour a week with someone that you trust to talk through some of these questions and issues and have them kind of ask you some very pointed questions. Um, be willing to be open to the process and the truth. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, you're, you're doing what you needed to do to get by and survive. I think that's what we do as humans. You know, luckily for you, these are pretty healthy activities, but there is such a thing as too much, right? Um, it, it is great, though, that you you have that experience and you're doing what you're doing. Um, and it's interesting that you say, like, you use that as motivation because you say, well, other people can't do this, so I know that I'm lucky. and. I, I really like that, you know? I really like that. Having the ability to know that is is a gift. Yeah, I don't know if, like, 
it's something that's popped in my head and I don't know if it's grounded in anything, but sometimes I think that, and there's people that are a lot more successful than me and work a lot less than me. So it's not like I have some magic formula to uh, success. I'm far from that. But part of me um, maybe says to myself that if I were better, then I wouldn't work as hard. Uh, or if I didn't have that like self-induced pressure that I wouldn't work as hard and then things wouldn't be as they are now. Um, yeah. So it's it's been a a hesitancy to maybe resolve some of those things because I can identify how they've been beneficial in my professional career, but they're definitely not yeah. beneficial. They're definitely not beneficial in my personal life. Yeah, and I think, but you know what? That's the journey that we have the gift to live. Everything is a gift. So I, I you know, hear people say before, um, every time you say I have to replace it with I can. So like, you're like, Oh, I have to go to the grocery store. Well, I can go to the grocery store. I have money. I can buy food off the shelf. I can feed my kids. You know, I can drive myself there. Um, you know, Oh, I have to pick my kids up from practice. You know, I can pick my kids up from practice. I have kids. They're healthy. They're able to play sports. Like there are always ways you can take those types of things in the everyday life. And for me, what I, what I say to people is you'll hear people say like, you, you never know how to live until you die. And what that refers to is people on their deathbed saying, I wish I spent more time with my kids. I wish I didn't work as much. I wish I didn't in that moment. They now know how to live. They know what is most important and how they should have lived. Well, people who suffer from addiction and mental illness to the point where we've been suicidal passively or actively, or we have not wanted to be here, or we've been so deep with no hope. When you get a chance to get back into this world and thrive, man, everything is different. It's just different. You know, like I know that I am appreciative of this minute right here. Um, I'm not guaranteed five minutes from now. I'm not guaranteed tomorrow. Um, take the trip, you know, work less, do the thing, you know, because I know I've been there, you know, I, 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 I know how bad it can be. And because of that, uh, things that I would have many years ago considered to be big deals are trivial. Yeah. It's a pressure of like wanting to provide for your family. And then I got in this environment where it was pressure to, serve our clients and our members or it was to coach our special olympics basketball program and it's like there's always someone relying on you um which is a great thing yeah. to have um it's it's a it's a really fortunate position to be in but uh can't pretend that it's not a somewhat challenging position to be in um yeah well you know like i said i mean i think for you um you know you're young and you're successful and you you're you're on your journey right you're the, the important part of i think what i hear you saying is that i'm asking myself tough questions about the model in which i'm living my life you know and that's all we can do right not be hard on ourselves right but just say openly and honestly like you know am i liking this am i you know do, am i missing out on other things am i doing this and um you know and then kind of change as you know, you or your wife or whoever else is your system for truth and honesty. Um, and, and because, you know, I, I, with the addictive personality, like I have, I'm the same way, you know? Uh, but the, the one thing I have learned for me specifically is what I thought I had to be was completely unselfish in life. And what I now know is that I have to be entirely selfish in order to be unselfish for other people. Like if I don't get my sleep in, if I don't get my workouts in, if I'm not eating right, if I'm not, you know, my medication, like all of those things, if they're not balanced and I'm not in balance, you know, around my house, you know, my boys or, or my wife, you know, no, I got to get a run in. And we've got a big day. We're going to be out and about all that stuff like that. I got to get a run in, you know, this morning, got to get rid of that angst and anxiety. They let, they know that I have to have that. And they know if they give me those things, then I'm, I'm the person they need to be everywhere else. You know, now I'm out and about with them and I don't have that angst I have inside if I haven't got my run in or whatever. Right. And I'm not short and snippy with them. <laughs> I, so like I things like that, you know? Yeah. yeah. So like they, with that. 
Yeah, right. So I mean, but they 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 know that and and they support it because they see when they do that they get great results from me and um you know, I think we with you know what you're doing and a lot of what we see in the world, you know, I am bipolar type 2, right? That's my diagnosis. I take 3 medications a day. Um, and then I take a thyroid medication too because my thyroid was off. So four medications a day I got to take. I never believed in a million years, five years ago, I could feel the way I do today. I just had a medication change, um, just change the milligram I take per day, like five weeks ago. As I get older and my testosterone levels come down and other stuff changes, I need to be in tune with my body. I'm sober, I'm clear, all of that stuff. I can feel this, so I am, and I need to bring that feedback back to my psychiatrist and my wife and triangulate those. So I never in a million years thought that I could get where I'm at right now. I, I didn't know it was possible for me to feel like this. I had no idea it existed. I didn't know how bad I was suffering. Um, but, you know, I'm covered under the ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act, right? And multiple other, you know, severe anxiety disorders, those types of things, right? So if I need accommodations for work, they have to be given to me. People with what we call hidden disabilities, which is what, which is me, right? My life isn't easy, man. You know, living in my head is not easy and living the life I have to live is not easy. It's better than I ever could imagine. And I have bad days and I have bad weeks and sometimes I have bad months. Um, but I know that I'm blessed to be here and to be sober and, and be surrounded by the people that I am. But when we talk about going into a gym setting or working or things like that, you know, when you've got anxiety or you go in bipolar depressive episode, you know, walking into a gym, a global gym, something like that to work out, all the bright lights, all the equipment, all the people looking, all sorts of stuff. No way. Absolutely not. So, you know, when we talk about safe places for people with disabilities, we have to understand it's not just physical disabilities. We have to give people a place that is safe and understanding and empathetic for mental health issues that they might be going through um, because they should not be um, viewed as different. You know, like when you're going through a tough time in mental health standpoint, your mind is attacking you 24 hours a day, even in your sleep. And you might not be sleeping at all. You know, you're just constantly under attack and to go out in public and function and do stuff is hard. But the thing that you need the most in that moment is a damn good workout, right? Like that will quiet your mind. That will get you to a point when you're like, okay. And also, you know, as you know, it builds confidence. Okay. I got my workout in today. I know I'm struggling. I know everything is hard, but I got to work out it, right? And you get the little bit of confidence. Okay, I can do this. You know, I can do this. So, you know, we need to to be more conscious. I think of that. I think it's hard to do. Um, but if I if I'm going into a gym in which I know I have friends or trainers or other people who get it, understand that I might not be at my best, but I still just need a workout and some love and compassion and support. Man, you know, that that's a good model, right? We need more of that. Yeah, the CrossFit community has obviously been a real strong pillar of um, the importance of of bringing people together in a fitness space. Um, yeah, you can you can critique training methodologies, et cetera, but you can't deny the fact that they brought community to fitness, and they were probably one of the first ones that did so. I think it's like finding striking that balance between. I think some people are intimidated by the. Uh, persona that's CrossFit has adopted. Once yep. you get it, once you yep. get in there, I'm sure it's completely different. But I know, like for completely us, yeah. yeah. But I know, like for us at our facility, we've had a lot of people that come to us because they see that we work with disabilities. They assume that our staff are empathetic, are willing to modify for them, make uh, necessary adaptations, um, and they don't have a disability themselves. But they say like, oh, these I want to get into journey, like my fitness journey. I don't want, like you mentioned want to go to one of those like Globo gyms. Um, so that's where like the value of inclusion doesn't and accessibility, I guess, doesn't just benefit the people with physical disabilities, but it kind of benefits all populations, um, a lot of populations at least. So I think that's yep. where like creating a, a welcoming and inclusive community has has allowed us to um, to train 
people of all abilities. Yeah, you know, just... I really didn't think about that, but that's a good point, right? I mean, if you're creating that environment and they know it's a very accepting environment, people who are really out of shape or have maybe confidence yeah. issues or things like that, like they will, they'd be more willing to go to that gym because they understand, okay, the staff here gets it, right? They work with people, you know, and they're empathetic and there's love and compassion and stuff. You know, I mean, and you're right about CrossFit. It's really, you know, the barrier is really in the, you know, the scaries of like, oh my God, these people are crazy. I mean, if you go into a gym, like a CrossFit gym, most workouts, you'll find almost everybody's over 40. Half of them are women, right? Every different look and walk of life. And not any of them are crazy, like fitness freaks. Like when I was doing it, I was, right? Um, because that's how I approach everything. But what I also knew at the time for me is that if somebody walked through that door new, I was the first one to greet them. I was going to talk to them throughout the workout because I know looking at me and watching me do a workout was going to be crazy intimidating for them. So I wanted to say, hey, I'm Ken, blah, blah, blah. Welcome. We're so glad to have you. And then at the end, be like, what'd you think? You know, we'd love to see you again. I think, you know, in that model, we call it the family or the community. It's very much expected for the senior members or the ones that could be intimidating to be the ones that are the most welcoming to set the standard for how things happen in here. But you got to get somebody in the door first. And that's the hardest part, right? When they have that thing in their head. Um, but yeah, it's the family, it's the community. You know, I, I know some, you know, in, it was struggling in and out, like some of those first years when I was doing it. When I wouldn't show up for a week, the trainer, a couple other people in the class, they'd reach out to me. Hey, where you been? Blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? And I'm getting over a bender and I could barely get out of bed, you know? And, and, it was. It's just nice to go into a place where you feel loved. I think we all just want to be seen, right, and feel loved, right. And I think you know what you're trying to build here. Why I respect it so much is exactly that. You know, fitness is the key to so many things, and you don't have to be crazy fit. It just has to be part of your routine. It does help settle you down. It does help build the confidence. No one's saying you've got to be a Greek god or goddess. No one's saying you've got to be all of these things. We're just saying, because for you and for me, it has been really healing and helpful over time. We just want other people to benefit from it like we did. And that's why now, like, you know, you talked about me speaking, like I speak to my local high school, to all of their health classes every year. Um, the senior health classes I speak in other places. And now I tell the dirty, grimy story of like all of it. Um, and it's really, really impactful. You know, the kids tend to love it. The feedback is great. And it, the message is really at the, the, the very basic level. We've all got shit going on, you know, even you looked at me in school, I was an all-state soccer player, I dated the pretty girl in school, got good grades, like, I had it all going on, right? Like, unless you knew me or my close friends, you had no idea what the hell was going on in my house. You have to understand that, like, everybody's got a story. And in high school, especially when, like, it can be really hard because it's so, everything's clicks, Right? And the kids that are struggling with anxiety want the popular ones. There's no chance they are looking at the quarterback on the football team and realizing that he, you know, is taking medication for depression or struggles with anxiety. You know, it's the farthest thing from their mind. There's no chance that could happen. And I see it. I see them talk to me all the time. It is. So, you know, we just, you know, I know you do this in your gym. It's just, we just have open arms for everybody and a lot of empathy and, and no judging, right? Understanding everyone's got something going on and I want to meet you where you're at and I just want to be an ally. I think that's been one of the the worst side effects of social media maybe is that it's always just the positives of people's lives and it just re like conditions that feedback loop of everyone's doing great and maybe I'm not. Uh, or every everyone has this these things going for them, and I'm struggling with this. So, I I think it's tough for kids growing up right now in the thick of that. Um, they don't yeah. know how to, they don't know how to process that stuff. Um, and social media has only exacerbated it. Yeah, and but, you know, like uh, so, two years ago, just over two years ago, I lost my best friend, the kid that I said that we started doing drugs together when I was 14. He lived in my neighborhood, best friend since like age five. He was never able to get sober. He ended up an addict like me, shocker, and we used to use together, and then he was never able to get sober, and he OD'd right before Christmas two years ago, 
And the the thing that I get the most from other people when I see them or at the wake or at the funeral, you know, I gave his eulogy, right? I mean, he's just, we could not have been better friends is that they were like, like his Facebook posts, he was doing so well. This, that, you know what I mean? And it's like, and I would see his Facebook posts and think to myself, you know, come on, like, I know you're really struggling and you're putting this out there. And, you know, I wish because I am on Facebook, you know, people will tell you or whatever, you can look at my page. I talk about when I struggle. I talk about my disease. I talk about my addiction. I talk about all that stuff. And I say, I just want you all to know when you look at me and my wife and the happy and the beautiful boys and the happy family that there's a story and that I still struggle here and there. And that's okay. And, uh, and I wish we would be more accepting of people's stories. Um, and I wish more people would be willing to share their story. Um, but you know, everybody's just afraid of being judged and I get that hard. Yeah. I, I think I sometimes hesitant to share things on social media cause I, I understand the repercussion that it might have for someone else who, who's like approaching it from that lens of, oh, this person's doing great and I'm not. Again, not to say that I'm the shining example of success, but like I don't want to portray something that seems so pure. Um, and there, there's nothing inherently wrong with it, but I, I just don't want people to feel like they're not doing well and other people are doing yeah. that. So I, I feel like yeah, sometimes I mean, I, I'm hesitant yeah. to share. I hear that. I mean, I think that um, you know you're doing something really good here, and as it pertains to your business and what you're doing here and all that, I think that's stuff you need to share. Um, but I think we also can have a healthy doses. Like, listen, my life's not perfect. I've got plenty of stuff going on, um, blah, blah, blah. But you know, what we're doing over here is really special. And, um, because getting more people into the doors of your gym can only help the world. Right. How would you gauge the efficacy of your speaking? Um, well, I mean, you want me to read a couple snippets <laughs> of what people said? Yeah, if you have them readily available. Uh, these are the this was the first year that um, they actually got feedback through like a Google form, and um, there was sixty pieces of feedback, and they were all uh, very similar. I'll read you a couple. I thought the presentation was incredible. I mean, this is a, a forty-five minute presentation, right? I thought the presentation was incredible. I am so so grateful we had this opportunity. As someone whose childhood has also been affected by someone with mental health and substance abuse struggles, I really felt so seen. Me and one of my best friends who was in a different period were hanging out over the weekend and for probably 45 minutes we sat in my car and just talked about how incredible the presentation was. The whole presentation was so impactful, so thank you so much. This is a, a senior, right, who is basically at the point where they've got senioritis, they've been accepted into school, Nothing matters from here on out. They could have only done one sentences sentence and almost every single person, 60 of them, did a paragraph. One more. I thought the presentation was very enlightening. I met Mr. Walsh over the summer and he briefly shared his story with me. I knew from that moment that he was going to share an incredible story with our class. As someone who has struggled with clinical depression and anxiety for my whole life, I truly resonated with some of the struggles in his life. I have taken away from his speech that when my parents ask about how I'm doing and if I'm feeling depressed, I need to be honest with them and seek the help that I need but maybe don't want at that point in time. I want to thank Mr. Walsh so much for his bravery and sharing his past. It has truly changed the way I think about my mental health and the mental health of those around me. Yeah, those, those are pretty powerful. Because you want, like, action. I feel like sometimes with, like, the motivational speaking it it has substance, but it doesn't always elicit action. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's like I told you before, you know, there's kind of a certain themes and what did I learn? And, and the biggest one is self-accountability. You know, like uh, when you're struggling, you got to own that. you got to ask for help. you got to chase down the resources. No one's going to come to save you. It's great to have a group of people around you that support you. But even in the absence of that, you got to stand up and you got to fight. Right. That's just the way it is. Um, and so like that, that girl, I talk about, you know, listening to the people around you. Like I talk about my wife and the dialogue we have and how helpful she is to understand behavior changes on my side. Cause with mental health, it happens so gradually that I can't pick up on small things until it's too late. She will see them well before I can, you know, weeks before I can. And she's that barometer, right? She's that, that, that like uh hurricane 
or, or sorry, tornado siren or something, you know, that goes off. So, you know, I talk about that. Um, you know, I talk about empathy and understanding for those around us and understanding people are going through struggles that we don't know about. Um, so yeah, um, we talk about, I talk about loss. I talk about how we need to remember people lost from addiction and mental health, that these are people that are dying from like deadly diseases and courageous fights against a deadly disease. And when we remember somebody by can't that dies by cancer, we always say, Oh, you know, they, they fought a courageous battle against a deadly disease and we remember them for how they lived. Right. And then we, somebody we lo we lose to suicide or, or mental or, um, a, a drug or alcohol, um, we remember them by how they died. You know, we never say, oh, they, you know, they were amazing, like blah, blah, blah. They, you know, every time I talk to people like, you know, suicide survivors, we call ourselves. So, you know, someone who loose, I'll, I'll talk with them as part of like, people will reach out and say, hey, can you come talk to them? And, and I'll say, you know, tell me about Bob, you know, and they'll say, oh, he was, he's drinking too much and he was depressed. I'm like, no, no, no hold on. Wait, like, tell me about Bob. Like, how did Bob live? Right. Oh, he was the best husband. Oh, he's a great father. And he loved animals. And you can see they smile, right? You know, like, why is their go-to the way they struggled and died? And we've conditioned that in society as opposed to, like, how they lived. And then say, well, yeah, I mean, we lost them after a courageous battle against a deadly disease. Because that's what it is. Because the people we lose to mental illness and alcohol um, and, and drug abuse the stats on those people dwarf the amount of people we lose to cancer. I mean, it's not even close. It's like triple in, in, or more in cases. So like, how do we remember the people we lost to these? Can we remember them with dignity and kindness and respect? And then that way other people who are struggling, be willing to raise their hand and say, I'm struggling because now we view them differently than we did. And now I'm more willing to raise my hand and say, I'm struggling because I don't think people will judge me. Like, how do we change the conversation about these things that are so stigmatizing? Um, and, you know, even small things like a lot of people say, oh, you know, um, they uh, committed suicide or killed themselves. Right. And we're like, well, let's try to go away from that. Like. We try to say died by suicide, lost to suicide, blah, blah, that type of stuff, because those other ways to describe it come with these negative connotations, these verbs that are so like, oh, heavy. And and so we try to like change that. So like I, I weave all of that kind of into the story about, um, you know, where I've come from, what I went through. Like I said, it, it's, it's a long time. I mean, there's a lot there. And But most importantly, like what I've learned and the lessons that I've learned and the way that I'd like them to view people, themselves, society, and these diseases. And um, I cry, you know? Like I'm, I talk about how I lost my sister or my mom or my dad when you saw that before. Like that happens every time. And I tell them, like when I tell you this story, I'm going to cry. I'm going to fight back tears. Like I know right now that makes me a real man. I didn't know that years ago. I was afraid to show that side. But this is raw. This is my life. This is the way it happened. And people that if you're talking about absorbing and what it means to them and how they can turn it into action, it's got to be emotional. It's got to be raw and it's got to be passionate. Right. Yeah. I think we already answered the, the theme of like how to make fitness more accessible from this lens of making sure you're more welcoming, creating a, accessible, inclusive, empathetic environment, understanding that invisible disabilities, hidden disabilities, whatever you want to call it. I know there's some, some, uh, debate in terms of what the most appropriate terminology is for that. Right. Um, right. understanding, yeah. understanding that those exist, um, understanding that inclusion is not just physical disabilities. Um, but it's, uh, creating a place where people feel a sense of belonging and, um, they feel included and supported. Uh, so I think that is the most applicable takeaway weaving this conversation yeah. and with the accessibility of fitness. And when we talk about accessibility of fitness and we look at down syndrome and CP and physical disabilities, but there's a lot more to it. Uh, and I think this conversation addressed those things. If, yeah. um, and I mean, all in the same place too, right? Like that's what you were talking about, about your gym, right? It's not just for people with disabilities, right? So, like, when you create these places that are only for certain groups of people, you know, 
then that doesn't foster the inclusion and the belonging you're talking about. You're saying people are walking through your doors because they just don't want to be judged. So now you've got, quote, normal people. I hate that term, but my point is, like, they don't have disabilities, They're you know, and they're in the same place. And now it's not just a place for people with disabilities, right? It's a place where there's empathy and love and understanding and no judgment. And I think that is most important because people with disabilities don't just want to be known as people with disabilities. They just want to be normal people, but be, but have places they can go and fit in. Yeah. It's tough. Cause like if, if you were a member at my gym, everyone would categorize you in that, in that normal group. Unless Absolutely. you, unless you readily shared your story with everyone at our facility or that if you share it all with um, the people at your CrossFit box, but um, yeah, that just goes to show that uh, there's a lot more underneath the surface for everyone. Yeah, and I do share in the gym or whatever because I, I want I want people to know that. But most because people when they don't. look at me, they yeah they wouldn't you know they look at me they wouldn't think it, and I want them I want them to think it. You know I want them to say, holy shit, he that that stereotype that's not the person that I thought. And when they have that moment, that's exactly what we're trying to do. Fight the stigma, fight the stereotype and say, this could be anyone anywhere and it doesn't discriminate. Thank you for listening to the AdaptX podcast. Our effort to amplify the ideas of our guests and create more inclusive and accessible industries is futile unless these episodes reach a larger audience. If you enjoyed our discussion today, please leave us a rating or a review on whichever platform you use. And if you would like to learn more about AdaptX, the course that we teach to health and fitness professionals and the projects that our organization is working on, you can subscribe to our newsletter through our website, www.adaptx.org. Until next Monday.